0: Okay, so we're going to start uh, week number six. Lion tamers need not apply. Uh, so let's uh, begin by reading uh, James 3, verses 1 through 12 together. i give you a chance to get there, and then we'll read it together. So James 3, 1 through 12. Let's begin. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body, and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell for every species of beast and birds of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race but no one can tame the tongue it is a restless evil and full of deadly poison with it we bless our lord and father and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of god from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. So... This might be a lesson that many of you walk out of here very quietly. (laughs) Uh, I don't don't know if you'll take the vow of silence after our lesson today. I hope not. I hope that what we'll learn is uh, the proper way to use our tongues and yet another way to prove the authenticity of our Christian faith by how we speak. Is it ever okay to stick our tongue out at anyone? Is it ever okay to stick our tongue out at anyone? And if it is, who is that person that it's okay to stick our tongue out to? You, you got it, the doctor, the doctor. You know how that is? You, you go into the doctor's office and, you know, and he uses that tongue depressor that makes you gag. I always hated that part of, of uh, doctor's visits because it makes you gag when he depresses your tongue. Um, But why does he look at our tongues? You know, why does the doctor take a look at our tongues and tell us to stick our tongues out or to say ah? He says it because by looking at the tongue, the doctor can tell some physical things about our body. So the tongue will give away some of our physical condition. And so too, the tongue will give away our spiritual condition. It will give away oftentimes the condition of our heart. Well, let me give you some fun facts about tongues. I'm sure that you woke up this morning waiting to hear these fun facts. Um, but it's, I think they're interesting, so I'm going to share them. Uh, the tongue is, uh, the average tongue, is two inches long, weighs about two ounces. You know, so, wow, small little member of the body, but it's the biggest problem in the church. Uh, so two inches long, two ounces in weight. Women have shorter tongues than men do. Uh, probably because we talk twice as much as they do, so we exercise it a lot and we slim it down. And part of our talking twice as much is that we have to tell them over and over again what we uh, were saying. Uh, The blue whale has the largest tongue in the animal kingdom. The blue whale's tongue is the size of an elephant, and it weighs 5,400 pounds. Their tongue, yeah, the blue whale's tongue. The human tongue in print is as unique as a fingerprint. Fascinating. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. If we would cleanse our tongue with a tongue scraper, we could prevent heart attacks, pneumonia, premature births, diabetes, and osteoporosis. Fascinating. I just did a little research for you did a little research. How about the phrase uh, that we use, does the cat have your tongue? You ever use that phrase? You know where that comes from? It originates about 2,500 years ago in Assyria. And what happened in Assyria is that conquered soldiers and criminals would have their tongues cut out and then they would feed the the tongues to the king's cats. Uh, That's where that phrase uh, came from. So uh, just some fun facts about uh, our tongue. And uh, some and other interesting facts that aren't really going to be a part of our study this morning, but just as we uh, peruse scripture, what we can see is that uh, some of our biblical heroes struggled with their tongue. Moses spoke rashly, and we read that in Psalm 106, 32 verses 33. Isaiah said of himself, I am a man of unclean lips. We find that in Isaiah 6, 5 through 7. Peter sinned with his tongue when he denied the Lord and then cursed. And we see that in Matthew 26. Uh, So we can go to many other examples in Scripture where the tongue and the misuse of it is represented. One of the interesting things is that just in our study of James, in each of the five chapters of James, he has something to say about the tongue. In uh, chapter 1, verse 19, he tells us we need to be slow to speak. Again, in chapter 1, verse 26, he tells us, for our religion not to be useless, we have to bridle our tongues. In chapter 2, verse 12, he says, speak and do as those judged by the law of liberty. In chapter 3, we're going to pay attention to the one chapter in the whole Bible that is pretty much dedicated to uh, the use of the tongue. Uh, then in verse 4, or chapter 4 of James, verse 11, do not speak evil of one another. Now we've yet to get there, but we'll get there. And then in chapter 5, verse 12, do not swear by heaven or by earth. So James has a lot to say about the tongue just in his letter, let alone these other references that I have given to you from other parts of Scripture. Well, many people have referred to James' letter as the Proverbs of the New Testament. So let me go there for a little bit. And I could spend all morning just in Proverbs talking about what Proverbs has to say about the tongue. But it wouldn't surprise us that much additional material is found in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Proverbs. Um, I'll just give you these references. You can look them up later. But Proverbs 10:19 it says, In the multitude of words... Sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Proverbs 12, verse 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 13, verse 37, he who guards his mouth preserves his life. Proverbs 15, verse 1, a soft answer turns away from wrath. As I said, I could go on and on just through the book of Proverbs and find uh, great examples of the use of our tongue, but let's focus on James because that's what we're studying and uh, I want to go there with you today and unpack these 12 verses in chapter 3. On the board behind me, uh, in very light ink, best I could do, um, just kind of giving you a rough outline of where I'm heading today. So I want to talk to you about the power of the tongue today. I want to talk to you about the potential of the tongue. I want to talk to you about the pictures that James gives to us about the tongue. And then I want to go towards the ending of that uh, passage in verses 11 and 12 to the poison of the tongue. So that's where I'm headed, uh, just so that you can see that uh, on the board behind me, or at least I hope you can see that. Um, but the power, the potential, the picture, and the poison of the tongue, well, as we jump into uh, chapter three, verse one, the very first verse says, "Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. Now, there are many teachers in this classroom, and there are some of you who w- once taught you 're retired now, but you once spent your your life 's vocation as a teacher. And uh, James is not talking about teachers, he's not talking about private school teachers, he's not talking about public school teachers, but he's going right to the hierarchy of the religious system back in his day, and he's talking to teachers who are teachers in the church. Now, we certainly can make application uh, to teachers elsewhere, and I don't really want to camp out on this particular verse, but I just want to point out that James is very soberingly telling us, don't be in such a hurry to be a teacher Uh, because teachers will incur stricter judgment. And that makes sense because what tool do teachers use the most? Their mouths, their words. And so they speak a lot of words in order to do what they are called to do, which is to teach. So in the church these people who were teaching biblical truths had to be aware that they would incur a stricter judgment because to whom much is given much is required. Now you and I may not have an official capacity in the church as a teacher but there are times where we are going to teach one another some spiritual truths and we are encouraged to do that all throughout scripture. And so when we are in that capacity of teaching a spiritual truth to one another we have to be careful and just be aware that there is a stricter judgment and there is an account that one will give for the words that they have spoken. And so this is what James is saying. Now he's not saying don't become a teacher uh, because that would be inconsistent. As we look at our biblical map, right? And we go into other portions of Scripture. Like if we go into Timothy, we see that they are encouraged to be teachers. That it's it's a blessing to be in that position. So James is not saying don't become one. He's just saying be aware that there is a stricter judgment uh, for teachers. Greater knowledge will mean greater responsibility. I think that's a uh, Spider-Man quote, isn't it? Kind of like that, or with great responsibility or with great power comes great responsibility, something like that. Anyway, so the power of the tongue. The power of the tongue is such that it can influence many people, and you know how that works. You know uh, words that you remember. There are some facts that you just can't keep in your head, but there are things that people have said to you, whether positive or negative things, you can remember them 30 years after they were spoken to you. That's the power and the influence of words. And so, uh, again, I don't want to spend our time there, but I do want to point that out because our words and our tongue is very influential and very powerful. But what I want to do is I want to go down uh, further now, and I want to go to verse 2 where it says, For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. So what James is saying here is that when we stumble, we all miss the mark. What's the three-letter word that means miss the mark? Sin. sin. good. Okay, so we all sin uh, in many ways, but if we are able to control our tongue then we are perfect and able to bridle or control the whole body. Now that word perfect, if you did your word study, they may do their word study on that. What does that word perfect mean? It means mature. Uh it doesn't mean that you're going to be uh, practically perfect like Mary Poppins. It doesn't mean that. It means that you are mature. And so the spiritual maturity that we have is often revealed by the use of our tongue that <laughs> gives us away every time and so when we are spiritually mature and we are able to control our tongue to some degree uh, then we are able then also to control the whole bi- our whole b- uh yeah, the whole bible our whole body now since teachers use their tongues more than most they're especially vulnerable to this but we are too we can make the application to those of us who are not teachers Uh, The more we say, the more likely we are to stumble. The more we do for Christ, the more likely we are to make mistakes. Uh, And that's just part of how, how it works. So now James wants us to understand this idea better. He wants us to understand about bridling our tongue. So he takes us through some good illustrations or pictures that will illustrate what he's trying to say. I think outside of Jesus in the New Testament James probably referred to nature and to the natural sciences more than anyone he was very good at that and we've seen that already in the first couple of chapters where he will make analogies to nature and so in this section in this passage James uses four examples for us he gives us four pictures and the first two examples are from the, fir- from the two most obvious things that are guided or steered by people in that day in particular. So in James Day, when you think about who his audience was uh, in, in uh, the letter of James, what we see is that his first two examples are two obvious examples that the people in James Day would have seen all the time. They would have seen horses and they would have seen ships because if you think about it, um, Jerusalem was near the Mediterranean, and so it wouldn't be unlikely that they would see cruise ships or or sailing ships uh, all the time. It would be very obvious to them. So in verse 3 of chapter 3, James says, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us. And so without direction... Without direction, a horse really is useless to us, right? If we can't get the horse to obey and to uh, go in the way that we want it to go, it serves no purpose to people. So we, human beings, put bits into the horse's mouth, and just that little tiny bit, that little piece of steel and a little bit of leather, uh, will guide a horse. It helps to bridle the horse, because the the horse will not bridle itself. There's no way that the horse is going to bring himself under control, so we do that. And it's only when the bit is placed into the horse's mouth that it becomes discipline for the horse, and it provides direction. Because the idea is that when the horse pulls against the bit, he will be hurt. And so in that pain, he will course correct. And therefore, the horse will go in the direction that uh, the person wants the horse to go. Well, that's one example from nature and one example that was obvious to the people of James' time. And an example that we can make a great application because so too, with an unbridled tongue we human beings can serve no useful purpose to god and so just like the horse is useless to us until we bridle its tongue we can be useless to our heavenly father if we don't bridle our tongue someone noted that almost every sin in some way is related to the abuse of the tongue at every sin in some way Almost every sin in some way is related to the abuse of the tongue. And I started to think about that, and I was hard-pressed to find a sin that I know that I commit that isn't somehow directly or indirectly related to the abuse of the tongue. So when the tongue is brought under the control of God, then man is brought under control too, When our tongue is brought under the control of God, then our whole body and our whole person is brought under control, too. Okay, now in verse 4, James says, second illustration, Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, they are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So the pilot has a desire to steer the ship in a certain direction, and how does he do that? He does that by use of the rudder. And so when we see uh, this illustration, again, most of James' readers would have seen large cargo ships of that day because Israel, it wasn't just Jerusalem, Israel bordered on the Mediterranean, or borders on the Mediterranean, and they could have looked at ships every day and wondered, how does something that massive stay afloat. How does something that big stay afloat? And here uh, we see it's by the rudder. It's by the rudder, a small bit in the horse's mouth, the small rudder in the ship keeps it afloat and gives it direction. Now, their ships back then were not as large as these cruise ships that we see nowadays, the majesty of the sea, the sovereign of the sea. And we see these huge, huge cruise ships, and their ships weren't that large. But in in Acts chapter 27, there is an account of Paul that when he was on an Egyptian grain ship, and this was the ship in which Paul was shipwrecked, that ship was, carried 276 passengers in addition to its cargo. So I'm just kind of giving you a reference. I'm just trying to show you how large that ship was. So it wasn't as large as the ships that we see today, uh, where maybe 2,000 people can get on a ship, but 276 passengers were upon that ship and, in addition to its cargo. And since these were true sailing vessels, it was not only the size of the ship that is interesting, because they talk about that in verse four. Look at these ships also, though they are so great. It's not just their size, but it's also because they were sailing vessels, it was also the wind, the fierce wind, that made these ships difficult to control. So their size combined with these winds made the ship very difficult to control, and yet it was just that tiny rudder that wielded the control of the ship. I don't know if any of you remember, Sue Weber probably knows this illustration, but I don't know if any of you remember the ship, the Bismarck. And the Bismarck was a German ship that was unsinkable. And I'm not talking about the Titanic, but the Bismarck was a ship that was supposed to be the unsinkable ship. And in 1941, it was torpedoed. And it it was starting to zigzag. It was torpedoed, and the ship was just zigzagging, and it couldn't get control, and it couldn't get back on the right path. And lo and behold, the British see the ship. They overtake the ship. And the reason they were able to overtake the ship was because the torpedo had damaged the rudder. And so because the rudder was damaged, The Bismarck was just zigzagging. It was out of control. And eventually what happened was that the unsinkable Bismarck sunk. All because the rudder uh, was damaged. Okay. So as a rudder controls a ship, so our tongue controls us as people. Now, we see that after we see these first two illustrations in verse 5... James says, so also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts great things. Well, what does it boast? Well, now we see the third picture. We see, see how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. A gigantic fire is started by a tiny spark. Just because the tongue is small, we should not underestimate its potential to do great damage. Many times in our summertime, we hear news reports of Southern California and various places where forest fires just are uh, out of control. Uh, And a lot of times, it's just one little spark that starts that forest fire. Or do you remember Smokey the Bear? What was his slogan? You can prevent forest fires. And uh, so that was a big campaign of Smokey the Bear. But just that whole idea of uh, just a little match, a cigarette stub, uh, a a little spark can start a forest fire and set a forest aflame. And so, too, our tongue can do the same thing because now James is being very direct with us in verse 6. He's so direct. Uh, Again, I've mentioned this in other weeks. uh, I really enjoy James because you don't have to wonder what he's thinking. Uh, He's very direct with us, and he doesn't doesn't hold back. And he says very directly in verse 6 that the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. And this is a unique phrase. Uh, He says the tongue sets on fire the course of nature or the course of our lives and then he goes on to say that this fire in the tongue is ignited by hell so he's very direct with us the tongue is a fire the very world of iniquity the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body so this little 2-inch 2-ounce tongue or muscle can set our entire body and defile our entire body, and set the course of our entire lives on fire. Now, what's the source of that fire? He's saying, hell is. Now, if you do a word study of that word hell in this passage of Scripture, the Greek for it is Gehenna. And that word means hellfire, hellfire. Gehenna is the word that is used there, and I'll use my horrible pen to write the word. So Gehenna means hellfire. And this is found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. And to be honest, James is the only place outside of the Gospels that the word Gehenna is used. And Jesus used it approximately twelve times in the Gospels. He used this word approximately twelve times in the Gospels, and it's a Chaldean word. It's a word that uh, was the name of a valley that was south of Jerusalem, and this valley that it was south of Jerusalem was at one time. If you go back to our, let's go back to a study of First Kings, it's where Moloch who was an idol, was, uh, it was a place that Moloch was an idol, other idols were there, Baal was there, but what was offered up to Moloch, who had the form of a bull, and we studied this a little bit uh, a couple years ago in another study, but Moloch was the idol to whom uh, people would sacrifice their children, that they would put their children into the fires, into the, the fiery arms of Moloch and sacrifice their children. And uh, this was just known as a place where children were thrown in sacrifice. And it became something that the Jews abhorred. They abhorred this place because of these horrible sacrifices that were going on. Well, to give you a quick survey of that time, King Josiah eventually abolished these sacrifices. And then that area, that valley south of Jerusalem, became a dumping ground. And it's probably equivalent to today's garbage dump. And what people would put into there was all kinds of refuse would go in there and dead bodies of animals would be thrown into this dump. Dead bodies of criminals would be thrown into this dump, you know, because dead bodies had to be burned. And so it became a dumping ground. It became a garbage dump. And sometimes our tongues are like that. Our tongues are like garbage dumps. And so this is a great illustration, a very uh, poignant illustration that James is using uh, in this word, with this word Gehenna. And you know, when Jesus used it about a dozen times in the gospel, Jesus was using that word to describe the place of future punishment for the wicked. And so people whose tongues were set on fire, or this place of the fire of hell was a place where Mark 9 verse 48 tells us tells us just it describes this hellfire it says this is a place where the worm never dies and where the fire is never quenched now with a little bit of that explanation and there's more I could say about this word but just with that little bit of ex- explanation we see how powerful and the potential for damage and defilement that our tongue has. And we see the gravity of what James is trying to tell us, that when our our tongue is set on fire by hell, it defiles the entire body and it can defile the entire course of your life. So James is saying all evil talk, evil talk, has its beginning in hell, and it will cause the whole body and the whole personality, if it does not become bridled, it will cause that whole body and that whole personality to burn in hell. It's a pretty powerful (laughs) verse and pretty sobering. Okay, now let's go on. So in verse 7, we get another picture. We get our fourth picture. So we've seen the whole, Horse. We've seen the God bless you. We've seen the horse. We've seen the ship. We've seen uh, the tongue as a hellfire, and we now see the animal and the animal trainer. And why I have called this week's lesson "Lion Tamers Need Not Apply." So when we look at verse seven, it says, "For every every species of beast and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race." This is our final illustration. Man can control or tame every kind of beast and animal, but, verse 8, no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and it's full of deadly poison. So man can control and tame every kind of beast and animal, but we can't control our tongues. You know, today, what do we have? We have dancing bears, we have trained seals. We have talking dolphins, acrobatic birds. I mean, think about it. You know, If you go to SeaWorld or visit any of those places, or if you go to Six Flags, uh, you see lions with trainers, heads inside the lion's mouth. Uh, how about Shamu the whale? Who doesn't like Shamu the whale? Love Shamu, right? And a trainer can train that whale to do all kinds of things, and yet we can't control the tongue. Or think of this. This is what I was thinking. The trainer trains Shamu spends the day training this whale, and then goes home and fights with his wife. <laughs> you know, think about it. That's, in essence, what James is saying to us, that you can control the wild beast and animal, but then you go home and uh, you, you say nasty things to your spouse, and you use your tongue uh, to cause some damage. And yet, he, you know, this, this trainer can train Shamu, but he can't control his tongue. Fascinating. Now, we're told that part of the reason that we can't control the tongue or tame the tongue is because it is a restless evil. And that's the second part of verse 8. And it is full of deadly poison. That word poison in the Greek means poison, but it also means arrow. It also means arrow. So we see it's full of deadly poison, and our, our tongue is also like an arrow. If we were to turn to the Psalms, just as we have turned to Proverbs, but if we were to turn to the Psalms, we would be reminded that we, again, must never underestimate the potential damage that can be done by the tongue. I'm just going to give you a reference or two. Psalm 52, verses 2 through 4. I'm just going to give you one reference. Psalm 52, verses 2 through 4, tells us, your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor. Proverbs even tells us, reckless words pierce like a sword. They pierce like a sword. They pierce like a sword. In South America, there's this snake that is known as the two-step snake. And it's just filled, the snake's mouth is just filled with venomous poison. And if this snake bites you, it's called a two-step snake because once it bites you, by the time you take two steps, you're dead. You're dead. And that's kind of what James is saying about the poison in our tongue. Now, you know, I can give you several kinds of poison that we will find in our tongue, and maybe one of these mornings we'll look at Uh, Some of the sins of the tongue. But let me give you two types of poison that for sure exist in the tongue. The first one is the poison of gossip and slander. I'm going to put those two together because they're kissing cousins. Gossip and slander. The Jews called the tongue the third tongue. They would refer to the tongue as the third tongue. Or they would refer to slander as the third tongue. Let me put it that way. The Jews would refer to slander and gossip as the third tongue. Why? Because three people at least were damaged by slander. The person doing the slandering, who else? The person hearing the slander, good. Who else? The person about whom the slander is occurring. So the slanderer, the slandered, and the person listening to the slander. I remember an I Love Lucy episode where Lucy is on the telephone with Ethel, and Ethel is uh, gossiping with Lucy, and Ricky walks in, and he overhears Lucy on the telephone with Ethel, and he says, Lucy, are you gossiping? And she said, who, me, gossiping? No, Ethel's gossiping, I'm just listening. Well, we're just as guilty if we're listening to the gossip as if we were the one perpetuating uh, the gossip. So that's one poison that is in the tongue. And here's another poison that we often don't think of, but the poison of flattery, the poison of flattery. I could spend a lot of time on each of these and other sins of the tongue, but let me just say this about flattery. Here's how I define it. If gossip is saying behind a person's back what you would never say to their face, flattery is saying to a person's face what you would never say behind their back. I'll let that sink in. If gossip is saying behind a person's back what you would never say to his face, flattery is saying to a person's face what you would never say behind his back. Psalm 12, I'll give you another reference. Psalm 12, verses 2 through 3. They speak falsehood to one another with flattering lips and a double heart. They speak with a double heart. They speak with flattering lips and a double heart. They speak. They speak falsehood to one another with flattering lips and a double heart. So James is telling us look, you know, look at all the tests he's given us just in, verse, in chapters 1 through 2 and now 3. He's giving us so many tests of our, the authenticity of our faith. How do you respond to trials was our first test. How do you respond to temptations was our second test. How do you respond to the word of God was our third test. How do you show impartiality was our fourth test. Or being a doer of the word and not just a hearer of the word was our fourth test. And now he's saying... What's your tongue revealing about your spiritual maturity and about the maturity of the faith and the authenticity of the faith that you claim to have? And now James brings this portion of Scripture to a very powerful conclusion. And he says in verse 9, With our tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men, who have been made in the likeness of God. It's interesting that it was typical of Jews when they would hear God's name mentioned. They would hear God's name mentioned in some kind of a context and then they would often say this after they heard God's name mentioned. Blessed be he, he meaning God. Blessed be he. Jews would often follow a mention of God's name with that phrase, blessed be he. But then to turn around and curse a man that is created in God's image is hypocritical. It's incompatible. It's incongruous. It doesn't make sense that on the one hand we would bless our heavenly father and then on the other hand or the other side of our mouth we would curse man who is made in the image and likeness of God. Now, how do we know that man is made in the image of light and likeness of God? Well, James tells us right here in verse 9, but also Genesis 1. If you want to go back and look that up, if you want to go to Genesis 1 and look at verse 26, we see that we were created, that God created man in his image. He tells us that in Genesis 1, verse 26. This idea of cursing, you know, we think of cursing as four-letter words, um, that could be part of it, uh, but it's also this idea of praying for wicked things to happen to people that we don't like or that we think are evil. And so we pray for harm to come to them, or we wish harm on them, or we wish evil on them. That's a form of cursing. And James is really clear with us. You know, he says, from the same mouth, verse 10, come both blessing and cursing. And then he's just reasoning with his brethren. He's reasoning with the recipients of his letter by saying, My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. This is wrong. This is not how it should be. It's contradictory. They're incompatible. And then to bring his point home and to drive his point home, he says this. He says, Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? He asked this question. So can you go to a fountain and from that fountain get fresh water and salt water or bitter water at the same time? No, that wouldn't happen. They don't have the same source. Fresh water and salt water don't have the same or bitter water don't have the same Source, fresh water and bitter water don't have the same source. And then he asks a second question. Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives? I'm not going to go to a fig tree to get olives. Or can a vine produce figs? You're not going to go to a vine to get figs. And then he answers his own question and says, well, you know, of course the answer is no. That's, that's a, another one of his rhetorical questions. He's very good at asking us rhetorical questions. And the, the expected, anticipated answer is no. And then he says, and this is how he ends it, neither can salt water produce fresh. This ought not to be. So he uses yet, yet again some other examples, three examples from nature, uh, and that's how he very powerfully gives us our lesson, very powerfully uh, teaches us about the tongue. And in in just summing it up, I just would like to say to you that let us prove to one another that our faith is genuine by the things that we say and the things that we do. Last week, we learned about the things that we do, that we are not to just love in word and truth, but we we are also to love in deed and in truth. So, we have to do things that prove the authenticity of our faith, and we also uh, have to say things that prove the authenticity of our faith. And it's not a matter of doing just to prove, it's a matter of when you believe in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, when you have genuine Christian faith, it's just a natural outpouring that you're going to want to do good deeds and that you're going to want to say good things. Now, how do I control my tongue? Well, what's the source of what's lighting it on fire? Is it hellfire that's igniting your tongue? Or is it the Holy Spirit's fire that is prompting you and encouraging you and teaching you how to say things that bring great value to other people and build people up and speak the truth? So there's not a hypocrisy there where... I'm saying to your face nice things, but I would never say those nice things behind your back because I don't really mean them. Uh, So many sins of the tongue. The littlest member is our biggest problem. Uh, So we have to be careful about, be careful little tongue what you say. Remember that song? Be careful little tongue what you say. Let's pray.